0: You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio, live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadig Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. And that is, my friends, a large universe. Thank you so much for listening this winter, now winter, Sunday morning. We are always, this morning and always, the show of ideas, never, ever, ever the show of attitude. This morning, I get to use my favorite word. My favorite word is why. Now, what is there about that word that gives me so much pleasure? I find myself always curious about how others feel about certain issues of economics, public policy, international relations and the like. Everybody else's opinion is always of interest to me, but it is far less interesting than why they feel that way, how they got there. One can just say, when you hear an opinion, I don't agree with you. And that's not much of a conversation. It's not very interesting. But once you look under the hood and learn why, now you get a chance to, on an intellectual level, Understand how the person you are speaking to or listening to, how they got there, and it is the why that might induce you to think or to reformulate your point of view and to learn something. So this morning, we get to use why a great deal. And the reason we are going to use it so much, because we are talking to, this morning, Yoram Hazoni. Uh, Yoram is an Israeli philosopher. He's a, bi- he's a Bible scholar and the rarest of all intellectual pursuits, a political theorist. Everybody seems to have an opinion on politics, but the why is kind of shallow, vacuous, or non-existent. With Yoram, the why is what makes it so interesting. And his why will perhaps induce you to think quite a bit. And of particular importance, we are talking about Yoram's new book, The Virtues of Nationalism. Now, to many of our listeners, that title, The Virtues of Nationalism, seems itself to be an oxymoron. With the Trump administration or with all of the fire and attention the Trump administration has been getting with his so-called America First foreign policy, uh, which has been a alternative or a placeholder for nationalism and with Trump's with so many people angry at Trump, the person and his policies, nationalism, if it had any kind of a a good name if you will before, sure does it now. Well to kind of balance the conversation and to really understand what nationalism is and why it is so core, to an American, our political ethos. With that introduction, I welcome Yoram to the show. Yoram is speaking to us from Israel. Yoram, good, good morning. Well, for you, good evening.
2: Good morning to everybody on the West Coast. Thank you for having me
1: on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now, the virtues of nationalism. Now, because there is so much misunderstanding with labels, isms are profoundly understood. I don't care what the ism is. Isms have folklore, misunderstanding, and so people can debate any ism without knowing what it is exactly they are talking about. So the conversation is not very interesting and doesn't get very far. So since it is the title of your book, we will presume you have an idea of what nationalism is. So, So we can get into the conversation. Your title is The Virtues of Nationalism. Help us understand what nationalism is as you use the concept and what's virtuous about it.
2: Nationalism is a uh, principled standpoint that sees the world as being governed best when nations are allowed to chart an independent course to develop their own traditions, to pursue their own interests. And traditionally, this point of view has been uh, this point of view has been opposed, has been seen as the opposite of an imperialist uh, or a universalist. Today, we say globalist point of view, which says, no, no, actually, the world would be governed best if there were a single regime of law of political enforcement as much as possible. It would govern all the nations. This is a very, very old distinction. It goes back not just centuries, but thousands of years, between a view that says the world will reach justice and freedom when people can have independence, and others who say, no, no, that just, just leads to unnecessary war and conflict. Let's have one rule for everyone.
1: So there is this dichotomy with those who are sometimes nicknamed as one-worlders or to take a more contemporary label uh, perhaps we can borrow from uh, George Bush new world order in the 19, in, uh, in the early uh, when Bush was president uh, the new world order was going to be we want to export as an exportable intellectual commodity, our way of living, our way of doing business, our way of organizing our government, because we for sure have figured it all out. And the only difference between third world and fir- first world is they haven't learned how we do business. Is that uh, somewhat simplistic but accurate comparison? Uh, I- an explanation I, I think, of one world I think, dump? I think it's exactly accurate. I, I can still
2: remember the chill that went down my spine the first time I heard on the radio uh, George H.W. Bush talking about the New World Order. This, this was in 1991. And I thought, oh my gosh, we, we, we just finished the Cold War. I thought the whole point of the Cold War. All those decades of struggle was to that, that, that America and its allies were the free nations struggling against the imposition of one world of a new world order that the Marxists wanted to impose and if you if you 're the free nations, I thought that that would mean that there isn't going to be one world order there's going to be many different Many different orders, many different countries, many different kinds of, of of governments, and each one, each nation is an experiment in what it means to be human. That that's what I understood, and I I was shocked, and I have to say that having seen now a whole generation of American presidents, uh, both Democrats and Republicans. And, and you can add the European political parties of both the right and the left for an entire generation pursuing this this new world order. I, I don't think it's a very good idea, and I don't I don't think it's improved in the implementation. And so I I think that the virtue of nationalism begins with the kind of humility that says, you know, we think we here in America or in Britain or wherever. We, we think our way of life is best, but if other people want to imitate, imitate it, that's fine. But the idea that it needs to be imposed by force, that there needs to be a, a, a world law with world courts and somebody's going to have to be the
1: world's policeman, that's a completely different idea. In, in your book, you, you mark as a seminal event both politically and as a timeline the uh, removal the destruction of the Berlin Wall and what i thought of when i i learned that concept from you in your writing and in your presentation was we first had a an imperialist enemy if you will uh, it it was in world war 2 nazi germany of course which although the word nationalist was in their title of their movement. They were by no means nationalist. They were imperialist as you have as you pointed out to us. So we had another group, another country, quite imperialistic, trying to impose their worldview. And we fought them because of course we were not going to allow that worldview to succeed. And instead of merely stopping their attempt at imperialism with by defeating them we went one step further it seems to me and i'll ask you to correct me if i'm overstating this that we replaced their imperialism their bad imperialism with our good imperialism so rather than stopping halfway and saying okay we have put back an imperialist movement. Now we can relax. We did. We went them one better and replaced their imperialism with ours. Is that too simplistic? Reasonably accurate? I'd, I'd want to be a little bit more uh, hesitant about it because
2: I I think that that's a very good description of what happened after 1989, when uh, when the the reason that I focus on the fall of the Berlin Wall is that. At that point there weren't any other world imperialisms that the United States needed to fight. If you're talking about the nineteen forties and the nineteen fifties, then somebody could say and and in fact my 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 friends who who uh, uh were in government, for example in the Reagan administration, this is what they say is look, we never thought of ourselves as trying to take over the world. We to impose our order. We we thought of ourselves as trying to defend free countries from, from communism. Now, somebody could come and say, look, okay, but in, in the competition with communism, the United States um, and, and ended up establishing a presence all over the world. And I don't want to object to that um, necessarily. To, but, but when you get to 1989 and the Soviet Union disappears, and there is no more imperialist communist threat. It's gone. There's no more imperialist Nazi threat. And there's no more imperialist communist threat. Then I think the whole question is, at that point, what do you do? And there were voices, you know, like uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher is, is an important example, who who, who wanted, who, who had this idea of, of a world of free nations. But the, uh, the utopian fantasy of, now we're going to have a liberal empire that's going to you know, cover all of Europe and and, and 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 then the rest of the world. That that fantasy is something that was so powerful that that the uh, the British dumped Margaret Thatcher because she wasn't willing to go along with it and she wanted to see an independent an independent Britain. Okay, so if you think about World War Two from the perspective of the Allies, they called themselves the the Allied nations right, and their radio broadcasts into Europe were all about this, about how there's enslaved nations in Europe, and our goal is to free them. To free them doesn't mean that we'll impose our way of thinking on them. It means that, that, unlike the Nazis or the communists, we're going to let each nation be free. So I think 1989 is the moment where you get, you really get to see for the first time, what is what is this about? And there were people like uh, Irvin Crystal or Gene Kirkpatrick, if you remember, uh, in the 1990s, who were saying, "All right, the war is over. Let's bring the boys home. Let's let's take care of the many terrible problems that afflict, uh, afflict American society. Let's take care of ourselves."
1: But that's not what, what happened. And so we ended up finding ourselves on a with a with a positive motive, not to obviously take over the rest of the world, but we weren't content to allow them the freedom to evolve into a more open society, a more small-D democratic society with with a market system and stable currency and all the good stuff that comes with We weren't content to sit back and let them get there or not on their own, but we felt somehow— we owed a duty to them to, like a parent with a young child, we had to push them towards what we knew was best. And they were, they could not reach that and may never would, maybe never would, reach that realization on their own. So we were not content to let them have their own, and I know you use this phrase in your book this self-determination that we had in our history. So didn't didn't we, in effect, and aren't we, denying them the self-determination to either get to a society that we think, we think is the best, and we are impatient, and we will simply say, whether you like it or not, that's where you're going. Is that a summary I, of I our think, foreign policy today? I think that's exactly right. I think if you... Uh, If you ask uh,
2: people in Serbia, or Libya, or Iraq, or Afghanistan, uh, how they see the United States, I think you'll find very few people who will say, well, you know, uh, the Americans and the Europeans, uh, their interventions were um, kind and gentle and ended up, uh, liberating our country and doing doing good for the world. You may find some people who say that, but I think that on, on the whole, people tend to look at these wars, I mean, if you're living in such a place, and see these wars as horrific and devastating and not necessarily as liberating. And a fo- foreign policy that says, you know, we in Washington or in Brussels... We know how every country in the world should should live. And if they don't live the way we think that they should live, then, well, we'll make them live the way that we want them to live. I don't I don't think that's a way to bring people to freedom. And I don't think it's a way to make friends. I think we've seen enough of it. It doesn't It it, it is well-intentioned. But, you know, you know what they say, right? I mean, you can get to all sorts of places
1: with good intentions so of course uh, what what should be our relationship to a struggling the struggling group of countries who are living in poverty who can't get it right who have uh, oppressive tyrannical governments do we sit back and as a mere observer and somewhat feel superior and go about our life? What do we do? I know you have discussed this in other of your talks, but our friends out there in my show haven't heard you yet uh, comment. What comes to mind, of course, is events like genocide, Rwanda, Cambodia. Do we sit back and say it's not our business, or do we— in your view of nationalism, how do we deal with those issues? And most importantly, because you have such an interesting view of it, what are the, the rules, the core moral standards which govern how we behave vis-a-vis atrocities going on in other countries that do not represent any threat whatsoever to our, uh, our country?
2: I I think if you take um the, these very extreme examples like uh, uh Rwanda or Cambodia you're talking about places where um where the Americans had uh, had solid information about uh atrocities uh, on a vast scale on the scale of hundreds of thousands or millions of people uh, being uh being slaughtered I think that if you have the the military capacity to go in quickly, put an end to it, and then get out without ending up being yourself the government of the country for the next fifty or a hundred years, then I, I I think I'm pretty much with everybody else that if, if if you can do that and you have the ability to do that, then it seems like you really should. I mean I. It seems like that's a pretty basic moral obligation. But I don't think that those extreme genocide cases describe American foreign policy over the last generation. I, I, I think we're talking about a completely different framework, which assumes not that you know, genocide needs to be stopped, but that you know any kind of bad government needs to be stopped. And I think that that view is, as I said before, I think it's utopian, meaning I, I, I think that it's well-intentioned, but it, it, it's simply not realistic. I don't actually think that the United States has the ability to enter a foreign country that it, it doesn't understand very well and to reshape its, its culture in such a way as to make it a, a democracy in America's image. Democracy in America's image is something that you know, is, is uh, uh, de- developed in the English-speaking world for for the last uh, eight or nine hundred years, <clears throat> and even in places that we consider to be, you know, very advanced and very civilized, uh, like like France or Germany, and people don't don't remember that 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 the the french the French state collapsed in the 1950s um, and uh, and uh, a military uh, uh, a military inter- intervention took over the government and reestablished the new constitution and that was in the 1950s in france and if you if you ask the question, how long have the French and the Germans succeeded in being you know self-determining independent democratic nations since then? I look at the European Union not as a very democratic institution. I mean, it basically is an autocracy that, a bureaucracy, excuse me, that that autocratically imposes laws on countries uh, that haven't asked for those laws. And so it seems to me that the French and the Germans have not been very good at maintaining what Americans or British would consider to be democracy, at all, so if the French and the Germans aren't capable of maintaining a, a a self-governing nation, a self-governing independent nation, then why why should we expect that you know that 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 countries in all sorts of you know foreign civilizations in other parts of the world that they should necessarily do things the way we do? So we 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 look at them and maybe 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 we're were right to object to various um, indecencies or to the the violence with which they conduct things. But that doesn't mean that the United States, even if it's right in in that kind of negative judgment, that it has any power to actually change it. I mean, it's kind of this hubris, this um, this arrogance to think that all, you know, that Iraq has just been sitting around for the last 4,000 years. Iraq has been governed by dictatorships. And, you know, since before England or America existed, for thousands of years, Iraq has been governed by dictatorships. And they're just sitting there waiting for the United States to invade and conquer it and set up liberal arts colleges and help them write a new constitution, and then they're going to be just kind of like Americans. I, I, I think it's a little bit crazy, No.
1: Well, you said something. We're going to go to break in a moment for 30 seconds. But before we go to break, so I'll give you 30 seconds to think about your answer. You said uh, America doesn't have the ability. uh, We simply don't know how to do it to go into another country and reorganize them. In our image and what I found myself wondering and we'll discuss this if you will after the break is what if we did have the ability what if we built a template so we know how to do it if is that the only barrier we don't do a very good job of it what if we knew how to do it should we still go into Iraq and say okay we have the template right here here's the kit passed these laws, and now you're on your own. Isn't there a morality that says, even if we know how to do it, we should not go in to do it? And I'm focusing, Yoram, on the comment you made, we don't know how to do it. So we'll respond to that question, Yoram, in 30 seconds. When we come back, Bob Zadik, spending a wonderful morning talking with Yoram Hazoni who wrote The Virtues of Nationalism. Does nationalism have a virtue? More about that in 30 short seconds.
0: Red states versus blue, urban versus rural. As federal government keeps growing bigger, we the people are getting angrier when our side doesn't win. Are we at risk of becoming a nation permanently divided? In his latest book, Power to the States, How Federalism 2.0 Can Make America Governable Again, talk show host and author Bob Zadek explores factions and divisions that are inevitable and a solution that's been there in the Constitution all along. Power to the States features conversations with top scholars, statesmen, and a sitting state Supreme Court judge. Bob and his guests show how liberals and conservatives are rediscovering the virtues of federalism where states become laboratories of democracy and citizens vote with their feet when they don't like what government is doing. Order your copy of Power to the States at BobZadek.com today. Z-A-D-E-K. A A house divided can't stand, but healthy competition between the states can make America more prosperous than ever before. Power to the States, how federalism 2.0 can make America governable again. Available now at BobZadek.com. That's BobZadek.com.
1: Welcome back to the Bob Zadig Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio, the show of ideas, never, ever, ever the show of attitude. This morning, we are spending an hour speaking with Yoram Hazoni, uh, who has written The Virtues of Nationalism. Kind of interesting, because Yoram's book, The Virtues of Nationalism, was consistent with the book that you heard uh, our announcer describe a few minutes ago, Nationalism is simply federalism on a global scale, I suspect. Before the break, I had asked Yoram whether or not uh, the limitation or the reason we shouldn't go in there and impose our way of doing business on other people countries, whether we shouldn't do it because we're bad at it, and indeed nobody can be good at it, and whether it is a practical limitation, or whether there is a moral reason we shouldn't done it, we shouldn't do it, even if we are really good at it. Yoram, am I raising a point worthy of discussion? It's so worthy of d- discussion. It, it's a little bit theoretical. I mean, in, in practice,
2: when you go into a foreign country... Knock over its government and then start trying to reshape it. It is extremely expensive in uh lives of the people who uh who are killed in that country and 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 wounded and the economy that is uh, demolished by the war and it's extremely expensive for the um in in human life and material also for the invader so it's a a little bit hard to think you know what if there were no obstacle should we do it anyway now f- of course i i'm on your side on as as you mentioned on the on the, the the idea of diversity and 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 localism i think that in general the world is better off if there are many different experiments in what it's like to run governments so the even if you could you know, just sort of wave a magic wand and get everybody to be the same according to, you know, best practices of the United States in the year 2019. I would still think that that would be an arrogant playing, you know, playing the role of God, assuming that you you know what's best for the whole world already, and that you wouldn't want to do that. In fact, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what God does at the you know, in the story of the Tower of Babel, is he. He, he looks at this aim of having all of humanity speak one language and have one way of thinking. And, and, and he says, I don't want that. I want a world of diversity. So, so it's kind of asking that question, but let, let me try to um, to, to, to steer a little bit in the direction of do Americans really know what's best? I mean, I, I, I think that the United States, although, although I don't have any problem with people who say, look, America is, is perhaps the, the, the greatest nation that there's ever been in, in many respects and in many ways, I, surely people understand that the United States is not some kind of perfected country. I mean, when, when many more traditional societies look at the United States, the first thing that they see is the Americans right now have something like 40% of American children are being born outside of marriage. 40%, which is a, it's a simply astronomical number. I mean, it speaks to, um, the, uh, to a, a wholesale destruction of the framework of the traditional family. Now I understand some listeners might say, "Okay, that doesn't sound like it's very important," but maybe others can at least, maybe they can at least sympathize with another country uh, in Asia or in Africa or someplace else that looks at that and says, "We don't want to import that. That that's a, uh, a a social ravaging and destruction whose consequences we don't even know yet." And we don't want to bring that in. We want to do things some other way. And so, when when Americans hear um, people in more traditional societies saying, "Look, your 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 framework for democracy and civil liberties and free markets—we're sure it has lots of good things about it—but we want to try something that that is somewhat modified. We don't want to do it your way. How can people be? I to me it's Hard to understand how you could be one could be so arrogant not to admit. Well, maybe other people have, you know, ha- ha- have some insights that we don't have, and I think that's basically what the virtue of nationalism, the virtue of nationalism, comes down to, is being willing to say, okay, I, I think our society is the best, but that doesn't mean that I have to be so certain about it that I believe that. that the right thing would be for me to just cause the whole world to be like me.
1: And what's interesting is you you have more than once in our talk this morning uh, pointed to the phrase that it is utter hubris, it is arrogance, uh, it is undeserved self-confidence in your position that causes us to say we are so confident that our way of doing business is the right way that we have a need, we are put on this earth to export by force that way of doing business. And for sure, we have used force in the Middle East, we have used force in Africa to some degree, we have used force in Eastern Europe to... Impose our way of doing business, and it is the the use of force that, to me, is where you profoundly cross a moral line. It is perfectly okay if you think you you're on to something in terms of governance. Then go ahead, make the case and persuade if you can, and help if requested. Help other countries to learn. How we have built our institutions that have served us so well, but to impose it upon them, coercion and force that is as anti libertarian as one can possibly be. And also, uh, you're so much, as you and I have spoken about before, so much of what you say r- reminds me of Washington's. Instructions to the country in his farewell address. He basically said, I will not quote him, I cannot quote him, nor say it nearly as well as he can. But we are a friend to all those nations. We are a friend if they aspire to be free and open and have our values. But we will not interfere. We will not export it. And that lesson in 1796 is as true today and Washington's words come through in Yoram's book, The Virtues of Nationalism, be a friend to others who are sympathetic uh, to our point of view, but not an enemy to those who are not unless they tangibly wish to do us harm. Yoram, so much of what I've heard you say, it's you are re- reminding me of Washington's advice, uh, his sage advice, his accurate advice, when he left the presidency. Uh, in He gave his farewell address in September of 1796, but it was your words and his words. So, Yoram, you're in pretty gosh darn good company. <laughs> Thank you. Donald Trump uh, has labeled uh, his... Policy, his foreign policy, as America first. Uh, that's he has said that over and over and over again. I don't think those two words aptly describe what you are describing in your book. Uh, I don't think, but I'll ask you to speak to this: whether we should aspire to be to look after ourselves first. It is not a competition. It is rather to be somewhat passive as to how others behave. So uh, do you sign on to the concept of America first, uh, or is that kind of inaccurate description of what you are proposing? I'm not sure it's an accurate
2: description of what President Trump is proposing, In his United Nations speech, I think he made it absolutely clear that he considers the different nations of the world, each of them to have a government that is supposed to be concerned with its own people first. Um, So America first is not, as far as I understand it, intended to mean America first on Earth. It's intended to mean that as opposed to you know this kind of uh, uh macron the president of france saying you know really none of us should be selfish we should all pool our we should all pool our government and pool our interests and have kind of like one big central pot that determines what's good for everybody i think president trump is is resisting that and he's saying no, a government is supposed to be responsible to its own people, and I completely agree with him that in the last generation there there has been a drift in that in America and in Europe, where the uh, the the idea that politicians are responsible to the well-being of their own people um, has has been replaced by this kind of pooled sovereignty and transnationalism thing. And this is something that John Stuart Mill wrote about, by the way, uh, already 100, almost 150 years ago. He said that this is completely impossible because what happens when, when, when you, when, when local governments give up caring about their own needs, which they understand best, and they, uh, they, they send upward, they sort of relegate upward the responsibility. So that there's some kind of central power that then is supposed to be rationally making all of the decisions. What you what ends up happening is that that central imperial, that imperial center, instead of actually working out what's for the best, the best for everybody, it works out what's for the best for itself, and ends up being doing good for nobody. And that that principle, which says government has the responsibility to care for its own people. If it can do good for others, then it should. And sometimes that's the case. But its first responsibility is to do good for its its own people. And I don't I I, I don't think there's any other possible way of doing things. I don't. I I think the other alternative that we've seen is um, is uh, these these world empires. And if if you can just imagine the European Union trying to run the entire planet, that's what it would be like. It, you know, the first the first few years, it, it seems real nice, and then it starts to turn out that that uh, that, that that they're telling the English uh, what size apples they need to manufacture, and they're telling the Italians, no, your your budget is rejected, and oh, by the way, he, here's who's going to be. Uh, we've decided in Brussels who you're your uh, finance minister is going to be. And then the Poles want, want to change their judicial system and, 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 the, and the Germans tell them, no, you're not allowed. And the Hungarians wanted to, to, uh, uh, to, to have immigration policies that, that favor Christians because they feel like they've been a Christian country for a thousand years. And, and, and people tell them, no, you're not allowed. I, I, I don't think it's possible. I think it's simply impossible to have some kind of central brain that figures out what's right for everybody. So we're going back to your, of your course, question from before. You know, it's, it, it's of course, impossible. There's no, there's no brain that can do that. So it, it can only lead to evil.
1: And that, of course, is pure Hayek, who uh, reminds us over and over again that the marketplace, the unfettered marketplace with millions and millions and millions of human beings making independent thoughtful for the most part decisions will dictate the value of any good or any service and central planning, the arch enemy of the free markets. Simply, you aren't smart enough. So again, Yoram, we're back to a basic tenet of your point of view. The correct point of view is that we simply aren't putting aside whether we should do it even if we are smart enough. But for sure, we are not smart enough. Nobody is smart smart enough to replace the function of millions and millions of people operating in their own self-interest. And your point is exactly that. People simply putting aside whether they should usurp the freedom of choice, putting that aside, the moral issue. As a practical matter, you just aren't smart enough to do a good job at it, and it cannot be done. And your point is, of course, true with respect to the, in my opinion, somewhat failed experiment in the European Union, and of course it is true in our own country, which is simply nationalism one notch down, if you will, federalism. States should have much more of the power. The power should not have been uh, ceded to Washington over the hundreds of years of our life. Because Washington doesn't know enough. They can't manage each and every state. And we are suffering on the national level within the United States the same problem that Yoram points to on the international level. It's exactly the same conversation with the same limitations. Now, Yoram, you uh, you embrace, of course, uh, the concept of nations and nations borders, and uh, your views are quite interesting with respect to immigration. The United States, as following the principle of nationalism, should look after its own citizens first. Starting with that point of view, where does that lead you insofar as adhering to the principle of nationalism, what should be our country's Approach to the very uh, important issue, the one that's being fought about so painfully in our country and around the world, of immigration. Um, how should a nationalist country approach the issue of immigration letting others join in the benefits of America? I think
2: the main problem that is not not discussed enough with respect to immigration is the fact that diversity, which has all of these benefits that, you know, that we, that we talk about people who see things in different ways and people come up with different kinds of ideas. I, I think that the, the benefits of diversity are very clear, but people tend not to notice or at least to discuss the fact that that's only true up until a certain point beyond beyond a certain point, diversity creates tension. And if it's unresolved, it can even be violence. And those countries which are domestically um, domestically quiet and at peace tend to be countries, not countries that are homogenous, you know, that, you know that where everybody's the same because there's no such thing. There are no such countries. But rather, countries that have one very do- dominant culture, right? So, um, countries like England or France or the United States, which are those are the countries that people tend to point to and say, "Look, historically, those those are the countries where freedom was uh, uh, was, was at its most successful." the countries where people would most like to live, where the Industrial Revolution took place, and so on, where, where, that are the most advanced in science and ideas. Okay, fair enough, but those countries are also countries that were, for centuries, internally coherent to a very, very, well, in, internally cohesive to a very large degree. The the population was mutually loyal. They That, that meant that if the government decided to do something, you didn't immediately fall apart into some kind of civil strife in the streets or even, God forbid, a civil war. Obviously, there were some civil wars, but in general, these are very cohesive societies. Now, the way that the United States succeeded in being a very successful immigrant country over centuries was through a kind of back and forth of uh, allowing foreign immigrations and then... Uh, toning them down and then allowing more and then toning it down. Nobody's ever, as far as I know, Amer- in American history, the United States has never surpassed the level of immigration that it's at right now, where where 15% of the population is foreign-born. And I think that it's important, even for those of us who are in favor of diversity and uh, believe that immigration can be a good thing, to understand that, you can't bring a country up to 30% immigrants or 50% immigrants and have the country not fall apart. And when I say fall apart, I mean that the uh, the, uh, the the groups that are coming in, they're not just doh in your hands. You know, they have their own ideas and their own aspirations and their own understanding of how you do things. And, and, and maybe for better, maybe for worse, but the point is that, no country can sustain above a, a, uh, a certain level of immigration without it deteriorating in such a way that it that can't hold itself together anymore. And I don't want to see that kind of violence in the United States or any other country that I care about. So I, I, I think that but immigration if- cannot be dealt with as though it's an absolute. It's not an absolute it's something that can be very good, but it has to be dealt with prudently. And if you see that you're causing um, uh, social friction, then that's a signal to you that you may have to move more carefully.
1: Of course, uh, I I have two thoughts on that, and regretfully we're starting to run out of time, but this is an important topic. I have two thoughts on that. First of all, uh, when... Uh, we achieve a higher level of diversity than you feel is the right level. When we get into the yellow zone, not the red zone, but the yellow zone, it seems to me that there are two kinds of diversity. Number one is the diversity that comes from a different background, perhaps racial uh, and issues such as that, that are external areas of difference. But if these people looking differently, speaking differently uh, with uh, with other differences in their belief system, but if they sign on to the American system of freedom, individual rights, personal property, do no harm to others, and be protected from people harming you, if they sign on to the Declaration of Independence, to be a bit simplistic, then that diverse, the diversity that exists is kind of irrelevant. They're in the program. And as to that kind of diversity, people who sign on to the Declaration of Independence but look differently and have some learning to do cannot be a source of strife and We may disagree on that, uh, but I just am so pro-immigration, I don't fear. Maybe I should be, but I don't fear a wave of immigration of immigrants from anywhere in the world who are here, whether they know it or not, because they simply want to participate in the principles in the Declaration of Independence. Am I being a bit naive? Yeah, a bit. It's the same
2: principle as... You can't just go into Iraq and believe that 4,000 years of their extremely rich and sophisticated history and, and civilization and religion is simply going to evaporate because you come and read them the Declaration of Independence or, you know, the, the, the advanced course in, 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 in Lockean in political philosophy. It won't happen, it, and it doesn't work. Now, I'm just saying the same thing again, but over here. If you bring some number of Iraqis over here, there's a really good chance that they'll fit in just great. But you can't say that 100,000 is the same thing as a million, is the same thing as 10 million, is the same thing as 100 million. That's impossible, because there's a certain point at which what you're doing is you're just just picking up Iraq with everything that's good and everything that's evil about Iraq, and you're placing it. In, in, within the boundaries of your country, and it doesn't make any difference, you know, that, that somebody somebody tried to teach them the Declaration of Independence, because human beings don't simply just change their software that way.
1: In small numbers, I think it's there's, one core, Below, there's one core. There's one core difference. Um, uh, uh, one core difference is when immigrants come here, they are doing so voluntarily. When we go there. We're imposing it upon them. The difference is one has coercion, one is purely voluntary. That's the only difference I would make. Yoram, we're running out of time. I want my audience to know how to follow your writings and uh, how they can find the book uh, and the other books you have written. You have a minute left. Please share with our audience how they can get to know you better.
2: The book, The Virtue of Nationalism, is available uh, on Amazon and on all of the other online booksellers. You can also go to my, um, uh, to my website, org Y-O-R-A-M-H-A-Z-O-N-Y, org, and there you have all my books and all my writings, and you can subscribe to my newsletter if you're interested. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Yoram. Please enjoy what is left of your weekend. And this is Bob Zadig saying so long for now. I'll be back again next Sunday for another hour of Libertarian Ideas, No Attitude.